today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, the first of a three-part series of interviews with the Professor of Dogmatic Theology at the University of Thessaloniki, Dimitrios Chalengidis, on the ecclesiastical and spiritual crisis we now face. We are grateful to Professor Chalengidis for joining us here on the Orthodox Ethos podcast. It is a great joy and an honor for us to have him, a friend from 20 years now, going back to my university days when I had him as my professor during the undergraduate years, my advisor in the master's program, and again, my doctoral thesis advisor. So I'm very familiar with the very orthodox outlook and teaching that Professor Chalinguinis offers to all of us, and for which I am very grateful. But we are honored by his presence for a more important uh, reason, and that is because we have a tremendous need in the church today for the patristic word, for answers to the faithful's questions and problems, and for the challenges that the church is facing, uh, answers based upon the teaching of the Holy Fathers. This is especially true for those outside of Greece in the West who are troubled and scandalized by the response which has been offered to date and who are in search of consolation and clarity. Professor Chelangidis brings this clarity because of his depth of knowledge, his education and his studies, his diligent research and labor, which have made him an internationally renowned academic theologian of Orthodox dogmatic theology. His important offering and characteristic, however, is his work's fidelity to the Holy Tradition and the deposit of the Holy Fathers, a faithfulness that he acquired by following experiential theologians of our day, those he knew personally, such as Saints Paisus of the Holy Mountain and Ephraim of Katunakia. He considers himself a humble minister, always emphasizing the absolute interrelation of right doc doctrine and right way of life, distancing himself from the creation of a sterile and cold academic discourse. He's the author of countless articles and seven books on dogmatic theology, covering a wide range of topics, including the theology of the icon, grace and freedom, critical studies of the doctrine of salvation in Luther, and the satisfac satisfaction of Divine Justice in Anselm of Canterbury, the Soteriology of Western Christianity, and the Presuppositions and Criteria of Orthodox Theology. Through his many lectures, articles, and appeals to the hierarchy on pressing ecclesiastical matters such as the Orthodox Roman Catholic Dialogue, the Orthodox Anti-Chalcedonian Dialogue, the documents of the Cretan Council, and the Ukrainian Schism, Professor Chelangidis has given much courage and direction and consolation to the faithful in Greece and throughout the world. We come to him now once again during this time of troubles that the Church of Christ is facing, troubles not on account of a virus or a pandemic, but on account of the undermining of and departure from the Orthodox identity, self-understanding, dogma, and ethos. The first thing I would like to ask you in this first part of the three-part interview is the following. 
This crisis is presented, first of all, as a crisis related to health, uh, whether private or public. And now we are entering into an economic crisis of worldwide proportions. We don't hear too often of the spiritual crisis, however, or the ecclesiastical crisis. How are we to respond to and encounter this state of things? How should we understand it, and what are the messages God is sending us? How should we face and respond spiritually to this really unprecedented situation in the church? Yes, it's true that most people understand the crisis in a material sense. When an economic problem arises, a problem with employment, with uh, making a living, this is when it is felt, because the man of our day has become a materialist. The spiritual dimension of man, which is the most fundamental, has been relegated to the margins, even within the life of the church. In the recent past, a few decades earlier, 20 to 30 years ago, in light of the ne negative developments into which we have already clearly entered, we did not pay proper attention to what was happening in order for us to prepare ourselves spiritually. So, in the Old Testament we read, attend to yourself. St. Basil the Great has a whole treatise on this. The fathers emphasize this, especially those of the Hesychast tradition, where it has been associated with noetic prayer and is practically expressed as a readiness of the Spirit. In other words, when a man prays with appropriate attention and is conscious of whom he is talking to and what he is asking of him, we'll, we'll say more on that later, in the church this is called a stance that gives us a kind of spiritual readiness so that when an issue of great importance arises, whether on a personal or societal level, we may have trained our spiritual sensors and so be able to deal properly with the difficulties. And by properly, I mean not in a worldly way, but according to the will of God. We all, all of the faithful in the church, have equally received our healing at baptism. Thus, we have no ontological or existential difficulty in keeping God's commandments. On the contrary, God's commandments are the specifications of being in the image of God, which we had. The only difference is that now we Orthodox Christians are at an advantage over the other people, in that we have not only been healed by baptism, 
and so no longer have any weight or ancestral sicknesses, and much less does the evil one have any sort of power in, order, in us to direct us. But all of us faithful have equally received, I repeat, equally received, the advantage of having the kingdom of God within us, which Christ promised. This occurred by Holy Chrism. Yet although we equally receive this kingdom of God, it is not seen to be active in the majority of Christians. I do not wish to analyze this, I'm simply mentioning it. To what does this do? As St. Paisius aptly put it, it is because we are filled with the rubble. This rubble is the various kinds of noetic refuse of vainglory, as St. John Chrysostom says, or simply our sins, which are purely the result of our free will, of our free choice of sin, and not of some internal ancestral sicknesses since we have been healed. Because God is a God of gentleness and freedom, the grace of baptism is not expressed by force, but remains inactive within us, although it is inalienable. It is as if we were not baptized, since we act, think, and speak like the rest of the world. Simply from this realization, we understand that because of sin, we have spiritually become like those that aren't even baptized. When, however, we desire to reactivate this kingdom of God within us, this is very simple and easy. It has repentance as its starting point. Let us remember the parable of the formerly prodigal and therefore saved son. The first action is to turn towards our father, towards God. This action is very much helped by God himself. Even before we approach him, he is depicted in the parable as being outside of the house and awaiting for us embracing and kissing us, while sin is still upon us. Repentance, however, has already effected a first cleansing. We read that when the prodigal son went to his father, the father embraced him and kissed him lovingly on the neck. He fell upon his neck and ardently kissed him, not simply kissed him. This means that God does not take issue so much with a man's sin as with his lack of repentance. Realistically, this allows us to be very optimistic. That is, the first move on our part for this beginning, which is uncreated inside of us, that is, the kingdom of God, which defeats all the powers and Lucifer and his armies and, of course, death and sin. Therefore, Thenceforth, man does not act on the basis of fear, which defines his ethos, the quality of his life. The evil one, of course, uses fear as his instrument to keep man from repenting, to keep him from repenting. He makes it difficult for him to repent in this way when a man commits sin. 
He provides space for the evil one to exist. He grants rights, rights to the evil one. And so when a man wishes to drive him out of himself, the evil one does not leave because he's a bad master. He says, I now have rights upon you. Since you gave me space, now I shall not come out. Even if you believe that I should rightfully leave because you have denied me. He is a bad tenant. Is this seen primarily in habits? Uh, it can be expressed as a habit, but it can also be expressed by continual requests, uh, telegrams, as St. Paisos would call them. Uh, which the evil one sends us in the form of thoughts, which are craftily invested so as to seem logically beneficial, until we realize that we have been terribly deceived. But then he brings us other difficulties, also seemingly logical, to stop us from repenting. There he presents shame. He does not present shame when a man is sinning, but rather when a man is about to repent and confess. So this does not concern moral bodily things only. This concerns a man's entire stance. What do we mean by a man's entire stance? A man either turns toward God in repentance, and what does repentance mean? In Greek, repentance means I turn my mind in the opposite direction. That is, I turned my back on whatever I was previously facing. I was facing the world, which lieth in evil, and consequently the entire civilization that I built within myself by my education, since this education and this civilization are largely the result of the worldly spirit, and so not of God. We do not need proofs to say this. The whole world lieth in evil, it says in Scripture. Therefore, whoever repents must turn his back on the worldly mindset of which the devil is the ruler. But this is not for the one moment when a man has realized one specific sin, since man is a, on a blade of a razor, meaning that independently of his baptism, he is free to decide with his disposition to move towards the evil one and towards the world. Now, but, but because the world surrounds us, especially in our day because of uh, technology, which, for example, presents to us on television whatever filthy things exist in all the world, while in the past things were not so widely known. And then because there's also the internet where someone can go whenever and as much as he wants, therefore man has become weighed down by this one-sided unloading into the dump that his soul has become. As a result, it seems impossible for him to develop a spiritual life. The evil one tells him so too, right? He tells him all the time, you cannot be saved. Yet these things are not so. The kingdom of God within us is not created. 
but uncreated. In other words, it has the divinity. The divinity pulverizes all these things, even if they be reinforced concrete on our spirit and on our heart, precisely because it is the divine power. The key, however, for the activization of this power, this okay, is found in freedom, which is expressed as repentance. Repentance is simply the turn. But beyond that, all the things we have mentioned cannot be activated. A man can receive a down payment even from his turn alone. But all of these things are granted in the mysteries. Right? So the church is the hospital that heals us. Christ himself is the doctor. Hierarchs and priests and others are the hospital staff. The medicines granted are perfect and do not leave behind even a scar of sickness. Man is healed perfectly, says St. John Chrysostom, because these medicines act uncreatedly. They act uncreatedly. While they do not, they do have an external material sensory form, as is the case with the water of baptism, the holy water, the bread, and the wine, within them is the divinity. Thus, an icon uh, also is equally a creator of the created, uncreated divinity. Speaking of icons, St. John Damascus, for instance, says that a man is sanctified not only in his eyes, in fact, he characterizes them as the first sense, the eyes are sanctified when they behold an icon of the church because it is a carrier of the grace of the one depicted. When he venerates it, because that is a more proximate relationship, then particularly he does receive the grace of the saint. In this case, Saint, uh, uh, saint Theodore the Studite, in the second phase of Iconoclasm, says that even if someone should say that the divinity is present in the icon, he does not err, he is not mistaken, except that it is by a union uh, by grace. It is by union by grace. Thus, it's not the paint, per se, it's not the wood, it's not the metal that is sanctified, but rather the form that is depicted and to which the veneration goes. So, uh, we are not speaking of a dogma of the church. We, we are now speaking, rather, of a dogma of the church. And I'm elaborating a bit more on this because it is somewhat relevant to our times. Uh, so we have to return to this topic, as you like. For now, with reference to this, let me close by mentioning the dogmatic importance of this matter. In the minutes and decisions of the Seventh Ecumenical Council on the icons, we read that whoever does not venerate them, if he be a priest, he is defrocked, while if he be a layman, he is excommunicated. Thus, it is not a good, it is not a, simply a good pious tradition. If you like, you venerate them. If you don't like, you don't venerate them. No. If you don't venerate for any reason, then you're outside the church. You'll tell me, so all these people People who do this, they are condemned, they are excommunicated. I'll say, yes, regardless of the fact that they haven't received a personal excommunication from the leadership of the church because it doesn't deal with this matter, and it does well in not dealing with it. The church wants to inform you of the certification of what you will be living. In other words, just as we receive payment in full consciousness for every sin that deactivates the kingdom of God within us, how, how do we... 
how does this work? Well, we do not have communion with God. Let someone ask himself if Christ is living within him while he is not keeping the specifications of the life of the church. And by specifications, I mean the dogmatic teaching. Let, let, such a, let such a man claim, if he can, that Christ is living within him. That communal counsel comes along and states this to help us so that we won't need to search long. Right? It tells us, do, did you not do this? Now you are suffering the consequences. Adam's creator, the bondless word, who told Adam not to eat of this fruit because if you eat of it, you will die. Did Adam die right after he ate it? Yes, spiritually, since we are speaking of the spiritual life. Yes. Where is it seen that he died spiritually? That he no longer When he heard the sound of God's feet, he hid. And God asked, why did you hide? Adam said, I'm naked. But you were always naked. Who told you that you are naked? You see, they have a whole conversation for Adam to repent, but Adam and Eve remain unrepentant. I want, the, I, I want to speak here of the spiritual death, which comes first, but I shall close here with the biological death, which God permits, so that when Adam sees in practice the wretched life that he has, he has by not keeping the specification, he repents and is saved, because Adam is now a saint. Eve, too, is a saint. She is in paradise, because they repented. So here I'll stop, however, and we have had set, had said much and can say much more, but I want, I believe that we have set the matter on a spiritual basis. One thing you said, which is very important, is that the canons of the church are spiritually applied immediately. Uh, their administrative application is another story. They may never be applied administratively. That changes nothing. Immediately means instantaneously. Anyone who can discover this. Look, this isn't theory. I tell you something simply that you can try experimentally. I tell you, I'll tell you this. I used to say this to my students. Let's suppose that you are in a very good spiritual state. Allow, permit, a blasphemous or evil thought to enter your heart. As soon as you have permitted it, consented to it, then again examine yourself. Examine yourself and see what's happening to you. You have nothing to do with God. The previous state has ceased to exist. In reverse, in reverse, repent for whatever you are aware of doing. Deeply, existentially. Orient yourself toward Christ and say, My Christ, I repent wholeheartedly for these things and do not wish to repeat them in any case. Do not wish to repeat them. I want to listen to you and live for you. If you do not receive a down payment of remission immediately in full consciousness, watch the words I'm using, they aren't mine, they are St. Simeon, the new theologian's words. He says that if you do not feel this after repenting, before you even go to confession, well, now the next question is, if spiritually this happens immediately, why do we have to go to confession? I, I shall respond to this afterwards. I'm speaking now of the down payment. Stay with me. He says, then if you do not see this thing in full consciousness, that is, feel it in your soul and in your body, then may I forfeit my salvation. 
May I forfeit my salvation? Look, look at that. He named the most precious thing he could. 998 years have passed since the repose of St. Simeon, the new theologian. That is almost a thousand years. Almost a thousand years. For a thousand years, the church has been celebrating him as a saint and a great theologian. That means in practice that he was not proven wrong. That whoever does this will most certainly receive the down payment. Because if he did not receive it, St. Simeon, the new theologian, should have ceased being a saint. You'll tell me, is there no possibility of one not feeling this, of the saint being proven wrong? Yes, there is. It is when a man thinks that he has repented and then confessed, but he did not repent. He regretted. He just had remorse. That is, he reveals that he made a mistake, like Judas, like Judas, and not like Peter. Not like Peter, who cried bitterly. Now, you have brought up the question of the down payment with reference to complete remission and asked why should one then go to confession? It is entirely necessary for one to go to confession because Christ gave this power of binding and loosing entirely to the apostles and through the apostles of the bishops and priests. This means that because we are baptized, we have become a royal priesthood. The Revelation says this, St. Peter the Apostle also says this in his epistles. We have a general kind of priesthood. What, what, is this, what does this mean? We can participate in the mysteries, not celebrate the mysteries, participate in the mysteries. A special gift is needed in order to bind and loose, and this is of the apostles, bishops, and priests. But the ability, the ability of participation is given by the power of this priesthood. And the basic thing is that we can defeat thoughts. We can defeat the thoughts. We have the spiritual power within us, within ourselves, by our baptism and holy chrismation, to defeat thoughts. And every high thing which lifts itself up against the knowledge of God, according to St. Paul. St. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Now, I come to the mystery of repentance, which is different from the mystery of confession. Repentance is the existential turn, the existential turn towards God and our persistent concentration on Him alone as much as possible. This is evident in prayer. That is, we are in repentance when during prayer our noose does not travel around when it is focused on God on the whole and whenever it does not depart. We bring it back. Whenever it does depart, we bring it back, repenting that it isn't where it should be continually because the news should be continually working. Christ told us, he said, my father worketh until now and I work. He called us to be working. The work performed by the news, which is worthy of the supreme worth, the noose has in man, since the noose is the governor, the peak. This work is prayer. And let no one say, if I'm praying, how can I take care of worldly cares? When a man is praying, then it is he becomes brilliant because he sees things in a spiritual way. He puts them in the right priority swiftly and makes the right decision. We think that by making our news independent of God and bringing it down into our mind, that is, by reckoning purely with our logic on the basis of the available data, we see experientially that we make a mistake. Sometimes very many mistakes. 
because there is one thing we didn't consider. The spiritual man, however, does not make mistakes. Not because he's infallible, but because the spirit that possesses him, that lives within him, governs him, is the spirit of God himself. So, even from the viewpoint of being spiritually bright, smart, it is our best interest to be in repentance. This regards repentance. This is what continual repentance means, not our occasional report of some sin. Right? Not just some sin. You said earlier that repentance is only a turn. No, not only a turn. It is the existential turn as a first movement and a permanent movement, if I may say so. Right? I call it a turn because experientially our news slips away and we have to bring it back. Beyond that, the process of repentance contains what is called self-visitation, which is when we pray that the Holy Spirit enlighten us, that is, enlighten our darkness, so that we may see what is happening to us. This is self-visitation. During self-visitation, we realize what is happening within us. And then we come to our self-diagnosis. That's what the prodigal did, right? He came to himself. Precisely, he came to himself, visited himself, saw his pitiful state, and thought what he had with his father. So it, it was the beginning of repentance, not the end. Precisely. It is the beginning of repentance, but it also has procedures. It has, so in other words, if after, after we have critiqued ourselves and seen what state we're in, then repentance is more evidently born. Right? He said, I shall go to my father. But from the moment he said it until he actually came and went to his father, it was a whole trip, right? Which St. John Chrysostom analyzes very well. Let our, let our audience read the pertinent passage. It says, he went to his father, then it says he decided to go to his father, and then it says, he went to his father, but while he was on the way, his father was, out, was outside. Right? He was on his way, his father was outside. As St. John Chrysostom interprets, in his disposition, he decided to go to his father, but it's not easy to go. The evil one had power over him, and as we said earlier, because the prodigal son had been doing his will. So the evil one had him in bonds. Right? When a man becomes a slave of sin, just because he made a good decision doesn't mean that he'll realize the decision. Right? First of all, he has to battle with the demonic powers. Let's remember this in our conversation, because after repentance, the first thing we need to seek is for these powers to be immobilized. If they are not immobilized, the evil one who's occupying certain spaces within us by our passions does not come out, we shall not be able to do anything, right? We shall be swinging back and forth, back and forth. So the first thing we must do immediately, which can only happen in the mysteries, is that we must go to confession, because it is written, when he went to his father, the father embraced him and kissed him. What does that mean? He accepted the man that repented. So we repent, we go there. For communion to be restored, we have to publicize these things because publicity extinguishes the evil one and ridicules him, right? And then, in this sincere confession, which is a different mystery, that is, when we have not only considered and decided it internally, but also confessed, 
then we receive this entirety of remission, right? This entirety of remission. I want to comment on the down payment a bit more, but uh, because they are, uh, they are of such great importance, we cannot go to our confessor very often, but we can repent and receive the down payment and so be free, relatively free, of the evil one in our decisions and actions. But to conclude, I would like to say that even this sincere confession does not absolutely guard, safeguard the remission that we received as a gift under our communion with God. Right? This is not absolutely safeguard. Only divine communion secures this. Only when we eat and drink, he says, only when you eat and drink me will you have life, said Christ. We have received remission. But what is remission? It's healing. Simply being healthy is not the goal. From a Christian standpoint, from a Christian viewpoint in the church, you must also have secured that life, which is not static, but always increasing according to your disposition. So, this whole process reaches its culmination in your blameless participation in the mystery of life, which is participation in divine communion. Blameless participation in divine communion. So remission clearly clears away obstacles, but only that. It's not life. We need to have communion. Man must have communion. Remission is the healing. Look, it's the healing. It is as if the sick man went, received some medicine, had a surgery, and his health was restored. Right? This is... He isn't sick. Let's put it in the negative. He isn't, he isn't sick. All right? But the healthy man is ever at risk of falling ill. The goal is not being just healthy. He must have some sort of activity, some positive stance towards life, some development, some creativity. This is a kind of nourishment, right? All right, the child is healthy. But if he is hungry, it's the same with adults. I'm hungry, but I don't receive the fuel, so to speak. I don't receive the strength. I cannot have the creativity that gives worth to my existence as a man. In our homes, it's not enough for us to be healthy because the Lord brought abundant life, not only biological existence. Now we are speaking of the life that is of an uncreated character, since we are receiving the divinity within us by grace. Now, let me only mention one more very important point about the down payment. Can we return in a little bit to our current situation so as to connect this beautiful spiritual discourse with the handling of this current crisis? Yes, yes, look, without the substructure that I have spoke of, whatever else we would have said would have remained incoherent and suspended in air. So, here I shall conclude with this, saying that the importance of continual repentance gives us the ability of being freed from the powers of the evil one because we are continually in humility. Since we acquire humility by repenting, and as St. Paisus would say, there's no exception in the spiritual law of humility. Quote, God giveth grace 
to the humble, according to St. James. When we receive this grace on the level of the down payment, by repentance alone, we have a certain liberty of proper spiritual movement. Right? This is not absolute, but we, we, then we say, glory to God, we live by these down payments. Right? I'm saying this in connection with the present situation that we live in. The churches are closed. We aren't receiving life within us since we aren't communing. Right? It's very serious, very serious. Nor can we even go to confession, but we can have remission of sins in the form of down payments. Right? By experience, we realize that not everything is black within us. Of course, we know that this is only the beginning of healing, but still we are not dying because we are repenting. Okay? Now, with this mindset as a prerequisite, we are now coming to answer the question of how we the faithful should face the situation imposed on us by the world, which initially presents itself as a health problem of the whole world, which then has uh, consequences on our spiritual life. And this is what mainly uh, concerns us. Our spiritual life is not abstract. It's not a matter of the intellect, right? It is a matter of eating and drinking Christ himself. As he said, he said, if you do not eat and drink me, you do not have life in yourselves. That's what he said. I believe that now we have before us a framework in which we can speak. On the, other, on the one hand, it is a commandment of Christ, non-negotiable, non-negotiable, irreplaceable. Right? If we are not eating him and drinking him, there is a specific time period for which one can survive. We notice this when we, for some reason, we haven't confessed for a long time, 40 days or something, and then even though we haven't done any particular great sins, in practice, we realize that the thorns, uh, the, the, the dust, the garbage comes in, and this is expressed in our social life, in the context of our family, of our job, etc. What do I want to say? I want to say that, of course, there has been a stage of, of um, realignment, so to speak, of things being arranged in many organizations, in society. Uh, but in terms of time, we are at the limits of our spiritual endurance. Communing in the mysteries is a matter of spiritual life or death. Yet, with the approach that the state sets before us, to which the leadership of the church has consented for the most part, some places more so, it raises the question of the next step, of the next day, if not of this day.